Good morning, everyone. How you doing? My name is Reese. I'm one of the elders here and privileged to give the message this morning. As Jeff had said, we're going to be doing a little bit different message this morning. We're going to be looking through our church principles. And you probably are aware, since you live in State College, that there's a big change around this time of year. Penn State classes start tomorrow, and that things around here tend to revolve around the orb of Penn State. And so as our church leaders have discussed, when do we want to talk about what our church is about? This is a good time to do it, because if you're new or visiting, um, there's a lot of change in the air. So this is the time that we want to cover our, our church principles. And, and if you are new or visiting with us today, I do want to extend an especially warm welcome. I'm not going to be reading all of our church principles, you know, all the words that are on the text there this morning, but you can find them on our website. So you can go ahead and look at that uh, when you want to. Uh, but I will be reading certain portions of our church principles. And I do want to start by reading our preamble, which will help us get going here. It says this, Grace Fellowship Church exists to exalt God by making disciples of Christ through his grace. We dedicate ourselves to build up every member until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. We believe that God has revealed himself and his grace in the scriptures. Therefore, we gladly submit every area of life to them. The scriptures completely mold our worldview, our teaching, our theology, our counseling, our activities, programs, and everything else about us. That's the preamble. So since prominently there was the scriptures, that's what we're going to spend most of our time doing. So if you would, open up to Luke chapter 7. This morning we're going to spend our time primarily in two passages of scripture as we consider our church principles. And if you know the name of our church, you know the name of the church principles, grace, fellowship, and church, those three things. And if you have an outline, those are the three points conveniently on the outline. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for our time together this morning. Help us to know you better, to see you more clearly. And I pray that your scripture and your word will fill our hearts and minds to change us to be more like Jesus. And that moving forward, this fellowship, this body of believers that you called here in State College will become more like you, and make you known to the world around us. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to begin this morning looking at Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. I'm going to start in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, saying, Simon, I have something to tell you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? 
I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You can see on your outline there are three points. Power of grace, true source of fellowship, and the mission with a different washing. Let's start with the power of grace. So a religious leader, a Pharisee, invites Jesus to over to his house for a meal. But one of the key figures in this story is actually this woman who comes in. And it says that she was a sinner. She has a reputation. Verse 37 says she was a, a woman of the city. When she hears about Jesus being there, she gets this alabaster flask of ointment and has this idea to go in and do something to Jesus' feet. Now, back in that day, apparently, you were allowed to go to these kinds of events. And the way that the setup was, it's kind of important here, that imagine that the dinner table, if you will, is in the middle of the room, but close to, to the floor, and that all of the dinner guests will be on the floor with their head closer to the table and their feet away from the table. And so these uninvited guests who were there to just listen in to what was happening would be on the periphery, closer to the guests' feet. And so this woman, she's not just there to be the uninvited guest who listens in, but she takes the risk to actually touch one of the guest's feet. And so Simon, who is the host, in verse 39 says, in his mind, doesn't he know who this is? And it's interesting that Jesus answers his thought question. In verse 40 it says, you know, I have something to tell you, Simon. Even Jesus knows that this woman has a reputation Because in verse 47, he says, her sins, which are many, even admits that she has many sins. But let's look at the woman here from her perspective in this story. So she takes advantage of this opportunity to go be near Jesus. She takes this opportunity for invited guests to come in to this, this dinner or this arrangement, this meal. And she takes a risk because what could have happened? She went in to touch Jesus' feet and to clean them and anoint them. But consider what could have happened. She goes in with this reputation and she could have been rejected very easily. She could have been mocked. Think about when she first goes down to touch Jesus' feet. When she goes down to touch his feet, what happens? Now, consider what happens when you are at the dinner table and you bump feet with someone else who's next to you. What do, what do both people do? Immediately, you know, you pull your feet apart because you don't want to communicate something that, you know, unintended. You don't want to be playing footsie. So what happens when she touches Jesus' feet? There's no indication in the story that he recoils his feet, that he moves them out of the way. In fact, what's recorded here is how shocked the other people are that he is allowing this to happen. If it were them, they probably would have pulled their feet out of the way. And so what happens at the end here is that she is honored for what she does. 
She isn't mocked. And in verse 48, her sins are forgiven. And if you notice in the story here, even though all this is going on, it's only the first time that he actually speaks to her in verse 48. And in verse 50, he says to her again, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the people in the room here, there was more than just Simon, because we know that from uh, verse 49, those who were also there or the other guests, they were shocked that Jesus allowed this to happen. I mean, how can he do this? Doesn't he know who she is? And so Jesus, rightly seeing through their hearts, tells this story in verse, starting in verse 41 about this money lender. And the key thing in here is verse 42, that they, they couldn't pay it back, no matter how big it was. There was different amounts that were owed, but neither of them could pay it back. And this is the dilemma of the person who was the debtor. I like to call this the debtor's dilemma. Because if you were the one who owed something that you couldn't pay back, what are your options? Really, you just have two options, and only one of them is a good one. The first option is to ignore the reality. And you could either run away and you're like, hey, I know I owe it, but I am out of here. I'm going to run and hide and hope for the best. Or you can ignore reality and kind of have wishful thinking. Like, you know what? It's not that bad. When it comes time for reckoning, when the creditor comes, somehow it'll just be better. That's ignoring reality when you're in the debtor's dilemma. The second option is to know that you cannot repay it. And to go and beg for mercy and hope that the moneylender in this case will forgive the debt. And so what happens is the story here that Jesus is, is telling is that the woman realizes that she cannot repay. And she goes to Jesus seeking forgiveness. She came in as a mess, publicly risking rejection and ridicule. And though she doesn't specifically say to Jesus, will you forgive me? But by her actions and by Jesus' response, that is very clear. And we know she's desperate. I was even thinking about how, how many tears did she have to shed to, to get enough liquid to wash his feet with? She is desperate. And she's drying his feet with her hair. She doesn't even have a, a towel. So Jesus wants his audience to realize here that, that no one is too far from God's grace. The woman is acting on this, this story of being forgiven, and she knows the debt she has. Meanwhile, though, what are the other people doing? They do not seem to realize the debt that they owe God. And right there in the room with them, they're having a meal with the very one who could forgive them of all of their debt to God. And so the point here is for them, they don't realize their unpayable debt to God. They don't see it. Now, what does this mean for us? This story powerfully illustrates our condition before God. Because even if you look like Simon on the outside, you got it together. You invite Jesus over for a meal to your home or a neighbor or whoever. On the inside, we are all like the woman. We are all a mess and in desperate need. And because of sin and rebellion against God, we have a debt that we cannot repay. 
that will come due one day in God's wrathful judgment. But there is a means of escape and only one means of escape. And that is to turn away from sin and go to Jesus' feet to receive forgiveness and mercy. And the best part about it is that you know that you can have it for sure. You know that Jesus will offer forgiveness for your debt. It's not a matter of crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Man, I really hope he'll say yes when I ask him. It's not a matter of, of having the good outweigh the bad as if I do more good things and hopefully it'll erase the bad things. It's not fooling yourself into thinking that I'm pretty good and I'm not like those other people. I'm sure there are many fraternity parties right around the corner from here the last couple of nights. And if you were driving by, you might be tempted to think, I'm glad I'm not like one of them. Those will not work. The only thing that will work is to experience God's grace and realize we are the woman in this story. Let me read you a portion of the text from our grace principle. Again, this is on our website. Our relationship with God through its beginning, development, and completion is completely by grace through faith alone. By grace, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. By grace, the Lord calls us to repent of the sin that still indwells us. By grace, he transforms us into his image over time until we stand perfected before him in heaven. We never go out of our need for God's grace. It is the way we know God and become more like him. And so just like this woman who, who went to Jesus and left forgiven, we can experience this same desperation to hope by experiencing his grace and his forgiveness. And, th- and this, this, this transformation from desperation to hope and joy is what has to mark each, in, each of us individually and corporately as a church. You know, what does this, what does this look like? What does this feel like? This kind of desperation to hope. Right here in this story, we have a, a kind of a vivid picture of what this looks like. Look at this verse 45. Jesus is talking to Simon and says, you, need, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I entered in here, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. That's what it looks like. Kissing dirty feet. What would cause you to do that? You know, what if we had a corporate illustration here? Let's take off our shoes and socks and kiss each other. Like, we're not going to do that. That's disgusting. But what would cause you to do that? What would cause you to kiss dirty feet? And the answer, God's grace. Joy would cause you to do that. It would cause you to do all kinds of crazy things. When you know that you've been forgiven of this debt, it is an amazing thing. I remember when I first believed in Jesus for the first time, I was over here, Paula calls at Penn State. And I had so much joy at that moment. I could not believe the debt was gone I was forgiven and I had new life. I'll tell you what, at that moment, I would have kissed anything. I would have kissed your dirty feet. And if only Jesus was there, it would have been such a joy to kiss his feet. In order for this church to exist at all, we have to realize that our life depends on God's grace. And let me ask you right now, 
Where do you need to experience God's grace? Where do you need to experience His forgiveness? What burden do you need to give over to Him? And where do you need to turn away from the things that you're doing to turn towards Jesus and go to His feet? To have that forgiveness, to have the debt removed. He offers it, take it. And have that joy. Experience that power of grace. So this woman comes in, takes a risk, and leaves forgiven. Experiences the power of grace. Now let's talk about fellowship, point number two. True source of fellowship. When Jesus tells this story uh, to Simon and the other people there, he asks the question, you know, who's, who's going to love the money lender more? Good question. And he gets the answer right, verse 43, I suppose the one for whom the debt, the larger debt was canceled. And Jesus says, you got it right. And that just makes sense, correct? Right? So if, if I lent you five bucks and I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, we probably forget about it, both of us. But if I came and paid off your $50,000 student loan, then you probably have a bigger response. And that's the point. You see from the woman, the bigger response happens, but you don't see it in the others. And when the story ends at the end of the day, you have a woman who's changed forever, leaving the house while the other people are still there eating dinner with Jesus. In verses 44 to 46, you see Jesus admonish the host with the things that he should have done to care for Jesus, his guest. And what Jesus was doing here by talking to Simon and saying, like, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, but she did. He was showing him that his vertical relationship to God was not impacting his horizontal relationship to his other relationships and the people around him. Or in other words, Simon's understanding of his depth of his sin. If he were to know that, he would know the incredible act of forgiveness would have a direct impact on his relationships with others and how he views them. And so for us, when we consider fellowship, this is very important. We have to know where the source of fellowship comes from. It's very easy to confuse the source of fellowship for the wrong thing. Now, there's a lot of good things in activity, in meals together, in hanging out, in talking, etc. But those are not the source of fellowship. The source of fellowship has to be God's grace. And to make that this point sort of stand out a little bit more, consider this story here. What were they doing? We could frame this story as they were having a fellowship meal together. But they missed out on Jesus, the most important guest at their table. So the true source of Christian fellowship has to be God's grace. And I would say that we can't have fellowship without it. And so if our church is not built on the foundation of God's grace, our fellowship at best will be a Christian club that meets on Sunday mornings. That's just part of our normal routine. And people do what they're culturally supposed to do to be nice to one another. You know, hopefully that is not what Grace Fellowship is about. And if we see ourselves moving in that direction, then we need to change. If someone, say, comes in here... And they're a known sinner in town. They're, I mean, they are the sinner of State College. And they come in here. They don't look like us. They don't dress like us. Maybe they smell bad. How can we have fellowship with them? Can we? 
Again, a quote from the fellowship principle. It says this, by his grace, God brings us into fellowship with him and with each other. If the point under sermon point number one was about our vertical relationship with God and being forgiven, and point two here is about our horizontal relationship with each other, we have to realize that both of those are fueled by the same source, God's grace, which is our love for God translating into love for other people. So what makes fellowship possible? How, how can you love someone that doesn't look like you? Or, or, or maybe they're weird. Or maybe you don't like them. How can you love them? How is fellowship possible? We'll go back to the illustration. Okay, the money lender. He cancels the debt. Who paid the debt? It wasn't free. The money lender paid the debt, right? That's, that's pretty obvious. He was the one that incurred the pain so that the debt could be forgiven. And in terms of the gospel of good news, Jesus is the one who died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, so that we could be free. Sin can be forgiven. And that offer is worldwide, across all time. This is how loving others is possible, is to know and experience that Jesus paid your debt, and you can love others. You can't help but be changed if you've experienced this. It will directly impact how you view others and how you relate to them. Jesus said again, he who has forgiven much loves much. So what can this mean for our church here? I thought of three things of how grace can fuel our fellowship. First is that we celebrate together. I mean, look around you here. We are all sinners saved by grace, I'm assuming. We get to be here together each week. We get to sing. We get to, to talk to one another. We get to praise God and, and nurture our relationship with each other and with God together. We get to, to listen to his word preached and grow through that, among many other things. It's such a joyous occasion to be here and have the freedom to do this. And just imagine how, I'll say it in quotes, Fellowship changes when you enter in with a humble, amazing appreciation for what God has done in you and for you. As I've been meditating on this, uh, this scripture, I've realized that I have a long way to go in terms of fellowship. I was very convicted that so often I come here on Sunday morning because I'm supposed to. And if I'm a church elder, I have to come to church and I have to do certain things. And I get so laser focused on on church business and, and other kind of diversions. And yet I miss out on Jesus in our corporate identity. And that's something that I want to change in. I want to quiet it, be quieting my heart before the Lord and meditating on him and realize what an amazing opportunity it is that we are together. What an amazing opportunity to be together. Sinners saved by grace together. We are all in the same boat. Praising God together. How amazing that is. How will that change your view of fellowship when you realize that? What about you? How can grace fuel your perspective on fellowship? One of the things that I want to be doing is, is even changing how I, I, how I talk to you individually when we talk. And you can hold me accountable to this. I, I want to ask more significant questions. Like, how has the Lord been teaching you 
you know, various things. What have you been learning from the scripture? Etc. How is grace fueling your view on fellowship? So that was the first one. Second one is that we care for one another. Jesus says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And we are here to love one another because Jesus has loved us. A great example of that is a few weeks ago, one of our, our families here was just very, very ill. And lots of people went over to help and, uh, and serve them. I'm amazed and humbled by the love that I see we have for one another at this church. And uh, I, like all of you, want us to see that continue to grow as we, we know Jesus more better. Uh, we care for each other and how we ask questions. You know, you'll, you can go pretty much go anywhere and hear the question, how you doing? But around here, I hear more and more the question, how are you really doing? And people are honestly asking and people are honestly answering that question. I mean, there's nothing to prove here. And so our trust is in Jesus and we can be defined by him. And saying that also, our care for one another also enables us to uh, work through conflict with one another. Again, we have nothing to prove. And so if we need to say something, or we need to ask for forgiveness, we can do that with one another. And then thirdly, how can grace fuel our fellowship? It means that we invest in each other. Let me read from the church principle. It says, as a fellowship, we have banded together to humbly help each member grow into mature disciples of Christ. You know, we are fueled by grace, and it doesn't mean that someone's like, quote, better than anyone else. There's no like pecking order or uh, spiritual hierarchy. In this church, we have men and women and children and everybody with all different kinds of experiences, walks with God, wisdom, maturity, people that can invest in us and that we can work with to help them grow in, the walk, in their walk with God. When considering this topic, uh, I found the two questions helpful just to consider. You know, who is your Paul and who is your Timothy? What does that mean? The idea is that we always need input. No matter where you are in your walk with God, we always need input and encouragement. And we're here to help each other. And if you have experienced God's grace, that powerful transformation in your life, you have been forgiven and you love much and you can love and invest in someone else. You know, a lot of time people don't know what to do. I mean, like, I want to invest in someone else, but I don't know what to do. What does Jesus say? He who has been forgiven much loves much. That's what you do. Who has God placed in your path? Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's an individual. Love them. Love them. What opportunities has the Lord given you to invest in others? You know, if, if, if even after that, if you're still stuck, you're like, I want to do it, but I don't know what to do, talk to me or talk to one of the elders. We can help you uh, think of some ideas. But the main point here, love one another. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. The true source of fellowship is grace. Let's move on to our final point here, the mission with a different washing. Verse 37. So the woman finds out that Jesus is there and she gets her ointment and she has in mind a plan, a mission, 
a risky mission, as I was talking earlier. You know, she was presumably going in uninvited to the religious leader's house with this reputation and her plan to clean Jesus' feet and anoint them with this oil. And I say this is risky, again, because she could have been turned away, rejected, mocked, all kinds of different things. Everyone else there probably would have done that, but Jesus doesn't. She kisses, washes, and anoints his feet, and she leaves hearing, You are forgiven. Go in peace. Her decision to take this risk, to go on this mission to serve Jesus, totally transforms her life in and out. And she leaves in peace. Let me read from the church principle on church. Because we are located in a transient community, God gives us a unique opportunity to impact the world for Christ. As God works through us to make disciples of Christ, he often calls our members to other places. Whether in state college or in the remotest parts of the world, our church embraces God's call to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. See, Jesus wants his people to go on a mission. This is a mission that has a risk of rejection. A mission ultimately to serve Jesus. And you know what the greatest part of all about this mission? Is that we know the outcome. Just like we know the outcome of coming to Jesus to get forgiveness. Flip over to Revelation 7. Or it'll come up on the screen. Revelation 7, verse 9 through 14. This is the end of the mission right here. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white clothes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is at the end of the age. Notice a few things. There's too many people to count because there's so many. And they're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And in verse 9, it describes their clothes and what they're holding. So they're wearing white robes with palm branches. So this is significant because they are totally clean and pure and they're holding palm branches which symbolizes God's rescue. And they're singing the same song to praise God in verse 10. And why are they doing all of this? It's because the mission is complete. It's time to celebrate and party because God's work is done. But there's a very key thing here that makes this whole mission and the whole party possible, and it's at the end, in verse 14. There's a washing that needs to happen. There's the question, where did all these people come from? And the answer, 
They are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They took their dirty robes, washed them in blood, and now they're pure white. That should catch your attention because that shouldn't work. That doesn't make sense to wash something in blood and it comes out white. This message of Jesus is so radically awesome, so amazing, and to many people, incomprehensible. Wash your clothes in blood and they come out white. See, Jesus, this woman went on a mission to Jesus in Luke 7 and washed his feet. But the mission that Jesus sends us on is to tell others about his washing, how he will make you clean. This is the mission with a different washing. And what's, what's pictured here in Revelation 7 is what we should call church. This is church. The church is universal. It's across time, nations, cultures, and languages. The mission that Jesus originally sent his 12 disciples on has been growing day by day by day by day until that day when the church of Jesus is gathered together and everyone is there praising God. All based on this washing of the blood of the Lamb to be made pure. And of course, that Lamb is Jesus. And our principle, Grace Fellowship's church's principle on church, tries to capture this. You know, we, we want to reach as many people as we can in this community in State College. And it's so encouraging to see all of us as we're out there trying to do that, trying to, to befriend neighbors, coworkers, whoever comes across our path, having block parties in our neighborhoods. This, this is happening. And people are hearing about Jesus. Our church is also part of a group called City Church. If you're not aware of what that is, City Church is a group of churches here in town that their, their, their leaders get together every week to pray. As churches, we hold each other accountable. We serve one another. We work together. We pray for each other and we reach our region together. At Grace Fellowship here, we also celebrate when members of our church head out to other places. You know, you probably won't be here forever. You're probably just here for a season. And so we as a church recognize that. We know that. And one great thing here is is we consider this mission on our minds. It transforms how we relate to one another. And so we're not just passerbys for a time. You could say that we are all in missionary training school together, getting ready to be sent out on the next mission. And so if you've been here for some time, you, you notice that at times... When folks are leaving out, we'll bring them up front here and pray for them and pray for their next mission. And if you're the one who's going to be next to be sent out, that's great. We're going to be very sad to see you go. But we're also going to have joy because in some small way, we played a part in helping you to grow closer to Jesus and preparing you for that next mission. Understanding that the church of Jesus is universal And that this mission culminates in Revelation 7 is key. And it will transform how we view one another here at church. And we remind each other 
that this day here in Revelation 7 is coming sooner than we think. Grace Fellowship Church and our little group here is on mission to change the world for Jesus. We each have varying degrees of opportunity and influence, and we seek to use them for his sake for that day. We want the church of Jesus to grow and everyone all over the world to hear about it. So we end up with this picture here in Revelation 7. See, Jesus transformed the woman's life after she took a risk to wash his feet. She sent out in peace. Jesus washes us clean by his death so that we are sent out in peace as well to tell others about that. So what are Grace Fellowship Church's three church principles? It's not a trick question. You know what they are now. Grace Fellowship Church. Grace from God that covers our desperate need for forgiveness. Grace that fuels our relationships and love for one another. That's fellowship. And for church, it's participation in a mission to bring as many as we can in for that day when the church of Jesus is gathered together. That's Grace Fellowship Church. Those are our church principles. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you that we can see Jesus clearly, that he is the one that deserves all honor and praise for forgiving our debt, paying the penalty that we deserve for our sin, that we may go free, that we may have joy, that we may know and love you, and from that, love our brothers and sisters around us. Jesus, we love you. Please transform us more into your image. We pray in your name. Amen.